Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox.com. You'd have heard that Perkbox have been sponsoring the latest series of episodes, but how could they help you? Well, Perkbox have made a platform designed to help you motivate and recognize your team. That includes measuring the engagement of your employees, rewarding superstar workers, and providing a flexible healthcare benefit to support your employees' well-being. If you're looking to improve the employee experience, Perkbox is the place. Find out more at perkbox.com. What are you doing this Friday? This Friday marks the latest global climate strike. Started by Greta Thunberg, the global climate strike has now spread around the world and Friday the 20th of September looks to be the biggest yet. All of us are staring the prospect of the global climate emergency right in the face. Things are getting incredibly serious and the question is, when are you going to stand up and be counted? Make sure your voice is heard this Friday. Get involved. Also, go to the website globalclimatestrike.net. In years to come, people will say, were you on the streets for the 20th of September? I hope to see you there. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello there, you're back again. It's a podcast about making work better. Specifically, how can any of us improve the work culture in our jobs? How can we make our daily employment feel less like a chore and more rewarding? Each episode, we look inside the evidence behind better working, delving into psychology, neuroscience, research into activating our motivations for our jobs. Today's episode is sort of provocative, stimulating, and will definitely challenge you. It's uh, Say if I said to you that maybe all the goals that you set on at work are a waste of breath, or that company culture didn't exist. Well, these are some of the things that Marcus Buckingham, today's guest, describes as the lies that we tell ourselves about work. He's written a book, Nine Lies About Work, A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. And he's written that with Ashley Goodall. It's sort of a challenging guide that I think will be appealing to bosses or someone who's in charge of a team, or actually just... Uh, maybe you just find yourself scratching your head about some of the ways that we do things at work. Marcus is most compelling when he tells us that the issues of modern work are that it's sort of obsessed with conformity. And um, I, I found his argument of why company culture didn't exist very, very convincing. I think I've sort of talked about similar things a few times. My personal feeling is that culture often comes down to team culture and then that's combined with pride in your company, uh, which is sometimes called purpose. I don't think they're necessarily always the same, but it's interesting Marcus says something very similar to this based on his own research. 
A short while into the discussion, we have a bit of a disagreement when Marcus is talking about companies that cascade meaning. And I, I get him to explain what he means by that. But um, when that part of the interview comes in, I am going to jump back in and add my commentary. So, so look out for that. Now, one point to note is that at several points in the interview, Marcus talks a lot about Graham. And I've got a sense he might have thought my name was Graham. And I've got that sense because I've edited about six more uses of him calling me Graham out of the audio. But when he's uh, referencing Graham, I want you to give yourself a a wee little smile there because um, it's quite charming. Here he is. He's the author of Nine Lies About Work. Here's Marcus Buckingham. My name is Marcus Buckingham. I am a researcher. Spent the first 20 years of my, 15 years of my career with the Gallup organization. And now I run the ADP Research Institute, which is an institute focused on what does work look like when it's productive and engaging for people. Now, I I guess the, the reason why your work is so fascinating is because so much of work is filled with these stories that we tell ourselves. And you've taken the subversive approach of actually looking at a bit of evidence, a bit of data. Through your work, you've come up with the conclusion that a lot of the assumptions that we've got about work are just plain wrong, which is fascinating to read. I wonder if we could just jump into a few of those. The first one that was really striking for me is that you're of the belief that company culture doesn't really exist, I guess. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's not really a belief. My background is on measuring things at work that are hard to measure. So how do you measure employee engagement? How do you measure performance? How do you measure talent? How do you measure strength at work? We're at the stage right now where an awful lot of our assumptions about people at work are about to be baked into algorithms that will drive all of our machine learning, all of our artificial intelligence. So now is a really good time for us to go, what are our core assumptions about people and which ones are findable in the real world and which ones are not? And when you take the idea of culture, we have an awful lot of articles and books and conventional wisdom says that company culture matters a great deal and that one company's culture is different than another's. If that were really true, then we ought to be able to go into a company like Tesla we ought to be able to find a set of attitudes for Tesla employees that are uniformly held by Tesla employees and that are different from attitudes being held by companies that work at, say, Marks & Spencer. When you try to find that, you can't find it. It's not true. You go inside of Tesla, you find much more range and variation in what it's actually like to work there inside of Tesla than between Tesla and and another company. Company culture is a convenient fiction it's not real. And we ought to be really, really suspicious of anybody who talks about how our company's culture is like such and such versus this company over here that's like such and such. It's not true. Company culture is pitched out there as a way to get people to join companies. It's a recruiting manual. And that's okay. We want to be attractive to talent. But if we want to understand as employees, what's a company going to really be like we ought to be super suspicious of anybody talking about their company's culture. Can you d- deep dive on that a sec? You talked about the sort of the, the variation within a company. What are you measuring specifically there? Well, if you take any questions, really, any questions about the lived experience of a person at work, do you know what is expected of you at work, let's say? Do you believe in the company's mission? Do you feel as though if you do excellent work, you'll be recognized for it? Do you feel as though you have a chance to play to your strengths every day? Just very straightforward questions you're asking people 
about their lived experience at work. If you believe that there is a thing called a company culture, then people's lived experience within one company ought to be uniform across these very straightforward questions. And it's not. It's very, very varied. The lie is that people care what company they work for. They don't. They care which company they join. But once they're there, the truth is they care which, they care which team they're on. Once you've joined a company, your lived experience and, and what you stay at, or frankly, what you leave, is not the company. It's the particular team you're on. We've really missed that completely at work. We talk a lot about teamwork, but we don't actually look at what are our best teams like and how do we build more teams like our best teams. Instead, we bang on about culture, mostly because the CEO wants to have something that they can do from the center to try to make sure that everybody is pulling their oars in the same direction, which is fine. I mean, the CEO's got to do something, I guess. The, the actual truth of your experience at work isn't really affected by, by what's written on the, on the walls of a break room about culture. So the levels of engagement are really directly impacted by local experience rather than by the slogans on the wall and what the company might have on its website. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the, the global experience of work at the moment in terms of engagement is really, really poor. As I said, I run this research institute at ADP, and we've just finished this 19-country study, a 1,000 employees in each country, so about 19,000 folks. And we have a, a really simple, reliable way to measure engagement. And although it varies a little bit country to country, overall, the level of engagement is 84, 85% of us are just coming to work. About 14, 15% of us are fully engaged at work. And we wouldn't necessarily expect 100% of us to be fully engaged because work can be difficult and challenging and so forth. But 14 or 15% is a really poor indictment of the kind of working environments that we've created for people at work. And when you look at per-person productivity, which really hasn't budged in the UK since 1973, despite all the money and effort and the technology we've thrown at it, you can see that we really have right now, we, we have a problem. We've designed work as though we don't understand how humans work. And this first one, this first lie about culture is probably the most obvious one. We work best, humans work best in teams, and most of us work on more than one team. When we miss that, which we do, you look at the National Health Service, you look at schools in this country, they're, they're not run as though teams and really understanding what teams look like and how they work best is the most important focus. We don't run our organizations that way. And so we, we miss where work is. And so one of the things that companies often do as coping mechanisms is they recognizing that productivity is low, recognizing that these organizations are complex. They often set these goals and we're in a culture where we're often surrounded with goals. Tech firms often call them OKRs. There's different nomenclature for them. So, so talk me through, because when I was going through your work, I was thinking, oh, here we go. He loves goals but you've got a very strong opinion on them. So do you want to give me sort of perspective? Talk me through the, the, the way that you see companies using goals and then tell me what's wrong or right with that. Yeah. And again, this isn't an opinion. The, the, the book's called Nine Lies About Work and the subtitle is A Free Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. If we're going to start to establish our core assumptions about people as a foundation for how we do work, we better look at the real world. We better look at the evidence about how people actually do work. One of the things we see today is companies, many companies, many of them in Silicon Valley, as you said, trying to use goals to create something called alignment. There is a fear that our people in our company are not aligned 
And so we will cascade goals down to the organization. We'll start with the CEO where he or she has their goals. And then they create mini goals for the C-suite. And one level below that, there are many, many goals and many, many goals and many, many. And this sort of cascade of goals flows down through, normally through human capital management software, where the goals will be put together for the CEO in October. And then by about January, in your field, on your, in, your, in your goal setting field, in your HCM system, your goals will suddenly emerge as cascaded down upon you many, 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 many goals of the organization CEO's goals. And as you said, they're called OKRs or KPIs or MBOs, whatever the acronym of choice is. All of this is designed to try to create alignment. But if you thought that that was actually going to work that way, then once people have put their goals in in January, then during the course of a dynamic year, as things as they always do, but what the goals you put in January are probably obsolete by the third week of February, as you need to tweak them and adjust them according to the changing circumstances of the real world, you'd have thought that people would go back into their human capital systems and change their goals or even look at their goals. And we know from data that less than 4% of people, once their goals are put in, less than 4% of people even go back in and look at them. We tend to put our goals in at the beginning of the year, and some of us then simply don't look at them the entire year until we go back in right at the end of the year when we might want to tweak them before our annual performance review. People don't pay attention to, they simply don't look at cascaded goals. Cascaded goals are companies' ways of trying to coerce you to get alignment. And it's a gross misunderstanding of how people set goals and what, what, what they're used for. Goals are only useful. They're only useful under one set of circumstances. We don't need to do OKRs. We don't need to do smart goals, you know, goals that are specific and measurable and actionable. We, we don't need to do any of that. A goal is only useful if it is set voluntarily by you. That's the only criteria. When goals are manifestations of our desire to express a value that we have, like say, if I want to challenge myself or be physically fit, I might set the goal for running a marathon, then goals really work for us as a way to make real the dent we want to make in the world. But as mechanisms to coerce people in a company to be aligned, they're completely useless. OKRs are completely useless. They just don't, they just don't work to get people to be more productive they don't work as a method for evaluation, and they don't work as a method for tracking ongoing progress. Goals as currently used inside of companies are kabuki. They're Saturday work. They're a waste of time. Surely then, the impact of that, though, is that we're creating a lot of bureaucracy that is potentially sort of, you, you mentioned productivities not increased but surely then we've created something that's creating a, a sort of gravitational pull on the impact of a company yes well we absolutely have an awful lot of the activities that we get people to do at work are going through the motions bureaucratic as you called it bureaucratic going through the motions goals is a good example we set goals really for three reasons one is to stimulate productivity one is to track progress through the course of the year and the final one, of course, is evaluation, performance evaluation at the end of the year. And goals do each one of those three things very, very poorly. Goals as a method of evaluation, of course, is useless because if I set five goals and I hit all five, and you set five goals and you hit three of your five, is it true that I am more productive than you? Well, as any person would know, the answer to that question depends massively on, on whether or not we can calibrate perfectly the difficulty, the stretchiness or slackiness of my goals as compared to yours, and we can't. So you might have been far more productive than me by hitting three of your five than me hitting five of my five, but it all depends upon the inter-rater reliability 
of the difficulty of my goals. Well, we can't do that. We know humans can't do that. Tracking progress. We know that the last 10%, we know from data, the last 10% of hitting any goal takes about 90% of the effort. So if you say that you know 63% of your goals are hit during the course of the year, you are 37% complete with your year, it's completely bogus. That's not the way the goals work. The last 10% is all of it, really. It's like the last six miles of a marathon are a totally different proposition than the first 20. We have kind of created for ourselves a set of myths. We call them lies, but you're right. They create activity where every year all of us run around, in this case, to put our goals in the system. And those goals serve absolutely no purpose at all other than making perhaps our C-suite feel better that they've created, quote unquote, alignment. They haven't. That's not the way that people work. Instead, the best companies don't cascade goals because they don't work. The best companies cascade meaning. And if you cascade meaning, as in what are we all here to do? What is the mission or the purpose of what we're trying to do? What are the heroes, the stories, the rituals that we have that reinforce that mission? If you create that, you cascade that, then people can set their own goals if they want to, to make their own values manifest. Can you give us an example of that? So so what would cascading meaning look like? Well, cascading meaning is a a simple example, and and this is a controversial example perhaps, but Chick-fil-A cascades meaning by saying we're not open on Sundays. So in the book, you mentioned mentioned two companies that have got real toxicity running through the way that they're perceived. And... Yeah. Uh, and uh, like uh, I was so with you in this bit and then the two I won't even mention the other company by name but um but th- I just wonder if you could you could bring rather than one of the examples you put in the book could you give me another example from the wider world well yeah so the the two examples and I'll keep using them all the time by the way I'll use Facebook and Chick-fil-A every day of the week man we have to bring what a mistake <laughs> what a mistake no no you, you've got to learn from the real world and by any measure, Facebook is an extraordinarily effective company. Um, and it's also a polemic. It's a company that at the moment has created really, really strong feelings for positive and for negative. And the best companies do that. And we have to learn when well, we've got to learn from the real world. And the real world's not perfect. So it's incumbent upon us to choose really carefully what lessons we draw from people or from companies in the real world. Right then, I said I'd jump in. I just want to give some perspective of why I jumped in here. So Marcus mentioned two firms, Chick-fil-A and Facebook, saying that they cascade meaning. And I just want to give some um, some context of why I took exception. Firstly, Chick-fil-A is, I think, what you'd call it if it was any other religion. It's a fundamentalist Christian company that doesn't believe in going against the Bible. And so one of the things that they take for that is that, as Marcus mentioned, they don't open on Sunday, but also they don't believe in LGBT rights. So the way that that's expressed is that uh, in 2017, they donated 1.8 million to three groups with a history of anti-LGBT discrimination. In 2012, just to give you a sense of how embedded this is, in 2012, the chief operating officer, Dan T. Cathy, made comments opposing same-sex marriage. 
and it runs continuously through the narrative of that company. Now, the idea that somehow the people coming to work in Chick-fil-A, who I was on a recent trip to the US and I stuck my head in the place because I was fascinated, I'd, I'd recorded this interview. Uh, the idea that they've got meaning cascading to them is just nonsense. They are minimum wage workers working in a fast food restaurant. And I know it suits his narrative to say it, but it's just not true. Additionally, he mentioned Facebook. Now, I don't want to be tribal about this. I work in the tech industry, and I know a lot of people I adore who work at Facebook. But I think it's fair to say that no one I know at Facebook has spoken to me in the last two years about the meaning of their work being the defining part. And there's loads and loads of evidence that that's just not the case. The company's glass door ratings have plunged in the last two years. There was wide coverage when an internal Facebook survey reportedly found that 52% of employees said they were optimistic about the company's future, down from 84% last year. This isn't a place cascading meaning. It was a rocket ship that people were thrilled to have climbed aboard that had incredible products like WhatsApp, like like, uh, Instagram bringing new life to it. This isn't about cascading meaning. And I know it suits his narrative to say that, but I just don't think it's true. So additionally, I was baffled why Marcus would choose these companies, especially now. Chick-fil-A has had a lot of bad press in the US. It's been denied outlets in, in some cities because of its its biased policy. Why would he choose these these companies? Sure enough, I investigated. Marcus and his company act as trainers for Facebook. In fact, in one article in Business Insider, Marcus is described as Facebook's lead HR consultant. There's also interviews of Marcus speaking at the Chick-fil-A annual conference at the same time that the COO was speaking against gay marriage. So if Marcus's book is about lies we tell, I'm sorry, but this is a lie that he's telling. Chick-fil-A is a fast food restaurant. It is not cascading meaning down to its employees. If you go in it, it's not filled with people, filled with some sense that they're on some missionary purpose. So I think it's disappointing that he chose those two companies. For me, it's sort of, it's a scratch on the coffee table of what otherwise would be a fantastic book. Right, my interruptions over. Now back to the chat with Marcus. Well, Disney companies are a, a, a very good example of cascaded meaning. They have rituals that cascade or reinforce what is meaningful here. Every leader has rituals, whether they know them or not. The best leaders are the ones who figure out what rituals do we need to have in place to reinforce a certain set of meanings. If you work for the Walt Disney Company in Florida and you're a director or above, once a month you work the third shift. Well, the third shift is the night shift. Why do you do that? Why do you get up at one in the morning and clean the park for eight hours? Why does tens of thousands of managers and executives do that every single month? They do that because they're reinforcing that there is nothing more important than a clean park for the guests. It's a ritual. It's symbolic. Is it the one and only thing we should do? Absolutely not. But is it a very carefully chosen ritual to reinforce the whole flipping point of Walt Disney World is making the guests have a beautiful, clean, magical experience. Magic is clean. It's not dirty. Now, you, you and I could say, well, that's silly, or I don't agree with Disney, or I think that Disney's a rotten company for this reason or whatever. That's fine. What we look in the real world, though, is we look at the best companies, figure out what is important to them and then they find ways to symbolize it ritualize it and that's what they cascade if you take in and out burger is another very successful company in the u.s they do the best if you've never had an in and out burger in the u.s it's, it's, it's they're amazing and they're amazing because they're fresh 
everything is fresh. All the ingredients, the, the lettuce, the, the tomatoes, the French fries, they're, they're all actually there as you can see four heads of lettuce sitting in the kitchen. You can see full potatoes stacked up that get made in the store into French fries. And because fresh for them is everything, they won't do breakfast. They don't do breakfast. Why? Because they, they can't get the fresh ingredients. So they've said, fresh for us is the meaning of everything. If you don't like that, if you want to work for a company that, that does breakfast, don't work for us. So if you want to cascade something inside a company, cascade meaning, and then some people will be attracted by the meaning that you reinforce, and other people will be repelled by it. Just like right now, some people hate Facebook and some people love it. It's a very clear statement in the world about what dent they want to make. And when companies do that well, then we have tens of thousands of people that work in those companies that all share the same meaning. Okay, that's alignment. Take me on because I want to get through as many of these as possible. I'm going to group two together because a lot of a lot of our experience of work is about giving feedback, receiving feedback, but also being rated. But so having our bosses' feedback turned into ratings or scores or numbers for us. Your overall take is that humans are really bad at rating other humans. Yeah. Well, this is a huge one. It sounds a bit sort of technical, but but almost everybody at work in Britain is rated. Now, if you produce widgets on an assembly line, then you're not rated because we can just count the number of things you output. And to some extent, the same is true for people in direct sales, where we don't need to rate you because your actual performance is countable. But for almost everybody else, which is most people at work, 95% of us are in what you'd call knowledge work, where we are, we're doing things where you can't just count our output. Well, those people, when we come time to, to pay you or promote you or fire you, the information that we use is your performance rating. Most everybody has some sort of performance rating, and that's where the manager or your supervisor or supervisors, plural, will, will, will rate you on performance, on potential, on lists of competencies. All of that is premised on the assumption that human beings can be, with the right tools, taught to be reliable raters of other human beings. And yet there is 40 years of really rigorous research that shows that that's completely not true. And when I rate you um, 63, 64% of the variation of my rating of you on anything actually reflects me, not you. And we know that because if I then look at a different person and rate them, the pattern of my ratings sh should change because I'm looking at a different person, but they don't change. I have an idiosyncratic pattern of rating and it moves with me as I look at one person after another after another, which means that my rating of you reflects me, not you, which is weird because we end up in business paying you or promoting you, training you, developing you, firing you as though my rating of you reflects you and it doesn't. It reflects me. That is a massive problem for all of us in the world of work because it means that we don't have, and by the way, today, we don't have a reliable measure of you, of your performance. So whenever you read anything which says such and such a phenomenon drives performance, let's say more diverse work teams drives performance, or, or co-located people are more productive than remote workers, or people that have been with the company for five years or more are productive than people that haven't. Or, or the inverse. Whenever you read anything like that that says such and such drives performance, everybody should know that's just made up because we have no way of measuring performance. So right now in the UK, we are creating data, which now, by the way, 
I mean, three years ago, this didn't matter. Now, any data on you will be kept forever. Most popular business book in the U.S. is a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. He's the he's the head of a company called Bridgewater Associates. They are promulgating the idea and have created something called the Transparency Library, where everybody rates everybody on every aspect of their performance at all times. And for those of us in the Britain that thinks that that's sort of extreme, uh, just hold your breath because coming to a phone near you is a is a feedback app that will enable anybody to rate anybody else at any time on anything. And it's all bogus. And yet it will be kept on you forever. And so why is it bogus? Because we know that the, what, there's no objectivity in the data or that the subjectivity is actually skewed towards the, the, rate, the, the person rating you? Well, actually, those categories aren't quite right. We get hung up on objectivity versus subjectivity. And what we should get hung up on is reliability versus unreliability. We know for sure that humans are unreliable raters of other humans. I can't take a concept like uh, strategic thinking, let's say, and hold that concept in my head. Reach into your psyche. Look at this thing called strategic thinking in you and then rate you on it and then turn my attention to someone else hold strategic thinking in my head stably, reach into your, that, that new person's brain and rate them. Humans can't do that. We have, we have this idiosyncratic pattern of rating. You can't get that out of me. And this isn't a function of unconscious rater bias, where I'm skewed by your gender, your race, your age. It's not a function of that. It's almost as though I can't even see you. We have deep unreliability when it comes to rating someone else. The only thing we're reliable raters of, the only thing human beings can reliably rate is their own experience. And the, and, and the, the best example of this would be in, in healthcare. If you've just had an operation on a deviated septum, let's say, when the doctor comes in the day after, even though he or she has done 3,000 of these operations and is a deep expert in deviated septums, when, when he or she leans over the bed and says, on a scale of one to 10 with 10 high, rate your pain. If you say my pain is four, the doctor doesn't go, no, it isn't. Your pain is five. We've calibrated pain ratings across the patients down the hall, and your four is not a four, you're a five. The doctor knows, as we all know in healthcare, right. the only person who's a reliable rater of their own pain is the patient. Now, it's a subjective rating. The, the patient is subjective in saying, my pain feels like a four. But the problem isn't subjectivity. We're fine with being subjective. The, the, the yeah. real challenge is if we're going to generate data about people at work and then act really materially on that data, like do we promote you, do we fire you, or do we give you a bonus, then the data had better be reliable. It can't be measuring the rater and then we act on it as though it's actually it's, it's measuring the ratee. It's like, gosh, we're moving into a big data world. We better be data fluent. And right now, most of us, particularly those of us in HR, are not data fluent, and it's causing and will continue to cause huge problems for us. So, so the, the, the way that the picture of work that you describe here is one where we've encumbered ourselves, but probably faced with the impotence that we can't measure anything and we can't, we can't accurately assess anything. We've created structures that make it look like we can, and then we've created organizations that are, are filled with bureaucracy yes. and control. Yeah. Paint for me the picture of what we and, and company cult, culture doesn't exist, but team culture definitely does. 
paint for me the vision of what you think we should be heading towards and how should we get there? Well, every single one of the lies, there are nine lies in this book, and every one of them, obviously, they're derived from data. But all of them, when you look at them and you sort of stand back, you go, what are they for? Why are we pushed a pack of lies? The main reason, and there's maybe a couple of reasons, but the main reason is because companies believe that efficiency equals conformity. We still haven't really broken out of the assembly line mentality where Henry Ford said, whenever, um, why is it that whenever I want a pair of hands, I get a human being as well? We still have taken, the last 100 years, we've taken the assembly line and, and through total quality management, business process re-engineering, now it's lean manufacturing or lean thinking. We're simply trying to squeeze the last drops of blood out of efficiency by emphasizing conformity. Culture is about conformity. Cascaded goals are about pushing conformity. Feedback to competency models is all about conformity. Deep down, we believe that human beings are best when they're homogenous. And, and moving forward, we, we, the best most productive team leaders realize that is fundamentally not real. Each human being who comes in, let's say that we've got 10 people who are all in the cell, they're, they're all selling pharmaceuticals, let's say. It might be easier, I suppose, if each one of those 10 salespeople sold in the same way, was motivated in the same way, built relationships in the same way. But the reality is they don't. Even if we carefully select 10 people for this pharmaceutical sales rep role, beautifully, they end up selling it, doing it differently. And the best companies figure out that human uniqueness, I don't mean in terms of gender and race. I mean in terms of the way that we're wired and how we're driven and how we think and how we build relationships. Human uniqueness is not a bug to be fixed. It's a feature to be maximized. And, and what the, 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 the real world shows us is that 50,000 years ago, human beings came up with an apex technology to make use of the fact that different people have different qualities and strengths. And that technology is called a team. A team is useful and powerful because it brings different people with complementary strengths together to achieve something together you can't achieve by yourself. Well, that's the real world of work. People are enduringly different. You can build a competency model. You can build a rating system to rate people against the model. You can build a learning management system to plug people's gaps to fit the model. But to your point, it's all bureaucratic fakery. Human beings are unique. They're beautifully unique. We need to build workplaces so that we don't try to force conformity. Right now in Britain, 14% of people are fully engaged at work. That is tragic. And it's done or created by design. We are designing work to try to grind down people's uniqueness, as opposed to saying, who are you? What unique dent can you make in the world? And how can we figure out teams, plural, by the way, because most people work on more than one team, in which your unique dent can be turned into contribution? I'm not saying that's easy. That's hard. But at least that's the right hard thing. Right now in Britain and around the world, we're doing the wrong hard thing. We're trying to grind gram out of gram. And it starts obviously in school, but it continues in the world of work. And it's super unproductive. Efficiency is not generated from conformity. Efficiency is generated through intelligent use of idiosyncrasy. We've just missed all of that completely. 
It seems that as business has gone for scale over the last few years, though, and, and you know, by minimising costs, scale looks like a, a really uh, profitable business model, a, a, a strategy to adopt. One of the things that comes with scale is that people are scared of those quirks, of those weird things, of those individualities, because they represent points of weakness. And you see in sort of global compliance training or you see in uh, people being put through programs which seem to be, a lot of the programs seem to be about minimising legal exposure rather than training the people concerned. They're they're more about box ticking for if anything goes wrong. We seem to be in the middle of a trend which is avoiding those idiosyncrasies. Yeah, well, you're right. Companies love scale and they love minimising risk. And an awful lot of the trainings that we push people through, an awful lot of the tools, the forms, the processes that we create in companies are designed to remove liability. And that's not wrong. That's not stupid. That's the, the, there's a reason there are checklists in cockpits. There's a reason there are checklists outside of operating rooms, because there are certain steps that we probably want every single pilot to follow before he or she takes off. And, and if we don't have those checklists, then we might get negative outcomes from flying. So that's fine. Like putting in place things that remediate and ensure that we don't have negative downsides is entirely appropriate. What we've misunderstood though, of course, is that getting from minus six to zero is a totally different journey than getting from zero to extraordinary performance. You don't get extraordinary performance in anything from ballet all the way through to software design by by getting the steps right. We have scaled mediocrity. That's what all these programs are designed to do. They're designed to scale us to minimum requirements of performance. If we want to get to excellence, we've got to engage with the weirdness of people. We've got to be weirdness orchestrators. Now, luckily, again, we've created a mechanism where you actually can do that. A team is precisely that. Our challenge right now is that if you want to scale something, if you really want to scale something, we should scale great teams. And at the moment, even take a company like Google that we always look to for sort of cutting edge understandings about work. Google doesn't know where its work is. Google doesn't know how many teams it has, who's on the teams, which are the best teams, or even how do we build more like the best teams at Google. Google doesn't know any of that because it can't see the teams. Marshall McLuhan, the philosopher, said that we build our tools and our tools build us. And when it comes to people at work, we've built human performance or human capital management tools that deliberately obscure the work. We've built tools that allow us to understand the boxes on the org chart, but we know that 65% of people at work today, through this research institute work that I just was quoting earlier, we know that 65% of people work on more than one team and that that team is not reflected, those additional teams are not reflected on the org chart. Those of us that work, we know that's the way the world works. We've got a formal team over here. We've got a bunch of dynamic or ephemeral teams over here that, that are emergent. They're not predefined at the beginning of the year. They come about by somebody just requesting us to join a project team and then we accept. So requests and acceptances are happening all the time. And most work that we are engaged by or that we leave or that we're good at, that work happens in these dynamic teams. And we can't see them. We can't even see the work at the moment because we built tools for HR and for finance, but we haven't really built tools for busy team leaders to use. Now, that is changing. Slack and Jira, Atlassian's products, these kinds of cooperation, collaboration tools are beginning to be used voluntarily by busy team leaders and team members, which is the beginnings of us understanding where work happens. 
But we are right there. We're just starting to see where the work is. You know, if you want to fix the National Health Service, you would start by going, stop for a second. Where's the work? We've built hospitals like assembly lines, and we wonder why doctors and nurses have higher levels of PTSD than veterans returning from war. Well, we've built it that way. And boy, what a wonderful opportunity today to change that. The, the final thing I'll say then, do you feel that we've tried to extend people's connectivity to far too many individuals around them? You know, if, if work happens at a team level where a team might be 10 people, it might be 100 people, it might be 30 people, but we've asked them to keep a thousand people in the loop of, of their work. Should we be trying to think, let's create more autonomy? Let's, uh, i tell you why I asked this. I, I chatted to Bjarke Ingalls, who's uh, probably the, one of the leading architects in the world, and he's building a building for Google. And he said, very similar to what you said, he said that when teams report feeling a sense of cohesion, it's normally units of less than 100 people and they're self-organizing. So when he was building the new structure for Google, he said, we want to allow them to put walls up so that smaller teams can self-define themselves, they can self-contain themselves, they can effectively focus on a team, and you'd be fascinated with his work, they, they can focus on creating this cohesive team rather than the burden of trying to keep 4,000 other people connected with their work. Yes, he, I don't know his work, but what you're describing would be borne out by data completely. Um, human beings, we work best when we can remember people's names and something about them. And there's a limit to how, much, to how many names and something about them that we can remember. Um, we love local. Humans love local. We hate being lonely, and we love local. We're not big herd creatures. We're little herd creatures. And work is one of the places in which we want to find our little herd, our little, it's not a big tribe of a thousand. It's our mini tribe of, of b between eight, it's really eight to 15 Eight to 15 is an, is an amazingly healthy unit for us to go to work and experience. And we'll probably have a couple of units like that. If I was gonna to talk to this architect, I would talk about the need for many, uh, the feeling, the physical manifestation of, of, of the truth, which is we work on a number of different teams at work. How, how is that supported and enabled by the architecture in which I live at work? But he's exactly right. We, but it really is bizarre today that when it comes to tech, there are so few tech tools built expressly for busy team leaders to get the best out of themselves and their teams. We don't make things that team leaders voluntarily use to understand themselves and their teams and their work and how to coach their people to be more productive at work. If you and I were going to go get money from Silicon Valley, we would go start a team leader tool set that would enable team leaders to go, oh my word, I'll use that. If that helps me get the best out of my people really quickly and helps me in the, in the ongoing flow of the river of my work, actually help me get the best out of my people on my team, oh my word, I'll use that. Those tools right now just don't exist. What's great is hearing you describe architects starting to go, wait a minute, work should be designed to enable healthy, productive, engaging teams. Wow, that would be cool to do that. More and more at work, we're gonna see more and more tools bumping into that reality. Local is beautiful. Well, amen to all that. Sometimes I think we need these provocations. We need, you know, if, if you to sort of get out, go out and assert that there are lies that permeate the way we're working. There's a remarkable thing going on, I think, at work right now that sort of, it's the, the big secret, the levels of burnout, the levels of exhaustion, combined with the, the tragic 
lack of productivity growth. The, these things are the inconvenient truths that are staring us in the face. And unless we challenge ourselves to, to confront these lies, work's only going to get worse, I think. Yeah. Well, I've got two kids, 18 and 16, and for 40% of their lives, they're going to be at work. I've seen my two children be really, really different through their lives to date. I hope against hope that they're going to go to work and find places in which someone's going to be really curious about their idiosyncrasies, about their weirdness, to use your word, uh, and then find ways to help them turn that weirdness into contribution. That's what I hope as a parent. And yet, as I look at the data of productivity data, the engagement data, the likelihood of that happening for my two children is really slim. And it's slim not by accident, it's slim by design. We've built in processes and systems that are designed to ensure that no one is curious about my two children at work. And for those of us with kids who are listening to this podcast, you know this to be true as well. Yes, of course, you want your kids to be productive and earn money. You want them to earn a living. And we all know that work can sometimes be boring and sometimes be difficult, sometimes be dangerous. We know that work isn't always just whistling while we work. But we sure as blazes hope that work is a place in which people will be curious about us at our best and will help us find teams and missions that help us contribute our best. Work should be at least designed that way. And at the moment, it is designed exactly the opposite way. Um, and that's, as you said, that's, that's kind of tragic on every level. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. Perkbox has helped improve the engagement of over 300,000 employees. From measuring engagement to providing inventive ways to reward your superstar workers and support your team's well-being. Find out more at perkbox.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thank you to Marcus for that chat. I know I've been critical along the way, but I think Marcus is uh, real. His writing gets to the challenge of modern work because someone at some point in the last two decades gave us a sense that we needed to track productivity. We've built bureaucratic organisations that ultimately don't trust people to do their job. 
So we check in on them. If you get a babysitter, what's your approach to your babysitter? Most of us would say we tried to build rapport with the babysitter. So if the babysitter doesn't do something we'd like, they feel guilty about doing it. But modern work is like we've asked the babysitter to write down what they plan to do. Then we call the babysitter to evaluate how they're getting on every 15 minutes. We check in constantly. The overall impact is that the babysitter believes that relationship isn't one of trust, it's one of performance. And I think it's a good model. We've created modern work to be this tiring, burdensome, bureaucratic organisation. If we're going to get back to work being enriching and enjoyable, there's probably some lessons that we can learn how we can reinvent. Marx's questions sort of prompt us to do that. So I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. There's over 80 previous episodes. You can also go to the website. That's got all of the previous episodes and it's got the opportunity to subscribe to the uh, the newsletter that goes out about every couple of weeks. I'm Bruce Saisley. I really appreciate you giving me your time today. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next time. We are the younger generation. We are the ones who are going to be affected, and therefore we demand justice. What do we want? What is justice? What do we want it? Everyone should mobilize for the 20th of September because this is a global issue which actually affects everyone. We are all in the same boat, so everyone should be concerned about this. I'm striking because if we don't fight for our future now, soon we won't have a future left to fight for. I'm joining the climate strikes to seek equality for the next generation. We need you to be a part of it because we need every age involved. Young people have been leading here, but now it's the job of the rest of us to back them up. This shouldn't be the children's responsibility because now the adults also need to help us. So we are calling for them to strike from their work because we need everyone. There is nothing we can't do and I mean if not you should do it then who else and if if not we should do it now then when when should we do it This podcast is part of Podstrike supporting Greta Thunberg and the young people behind the global climate strike on the 20th of September For more information head to globalclimatestrike.net deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.